Welcome to the Mystic and Skeptic. Our uh, guest is Mira Z. Amiraz. Um, she was raised um, by her mother's account of the Inquisition and Holocaust and her father's tales of the Hebrew alphabet letters and their role in the creation of the universe. She's a professor emerita at Comparative Religion and Middle East Studies at San Jose State University. She received a PhD in anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley, and she's the author of Development and Disenchantment in Rural Tunisia. Uh, writer and director of the award-winning uh, animated movie, The Day Before Creation. Uh, she's also the author of the book, uh, Malka's Notebook, which is uh, fascinating and we'll be discussing today on our show. Uh, welcome, uh, Ms. Mira. Thank you so much. So tell us about um, your journey. Um, I know you, you live in San Francisco, but um, how did you um, decide to study anthropology and uh, world religions in, in your journey? And what, uh, what was your experience being a descendant of a Holocaust survivor? So um, my father used to give me books, I, I think from Malka's notebook that becomes pretty obvious. And when I was in about sixth grade, he gave me a book of archaeology. And I decided that that would be the greatest thing in the world to become an archaeologist, except for one thing that he also brought me to bookstores and he brought me to City Lights, which is Lawrence Ferlinghetti's bookstore and publishing house in those days of beat poetry. So I decided I wanted to be a beat poet. So it was archaeology, anthropology, or poetry and, and the whole beatnik thing. And it, it turned out, I didn't know it then, but you could do both. <laughs> and, and I think that influenced me. I became an anthropologist, and I was also obsessed with um, the beat movement and, and the poetry of that era. So you've been doing um, other poetry before this book, or, and what were you teaching when you were um, a professor in California? So at first, I was in the anthropology department at San Jose State uh, University, and I created a Middle East studies program. And it, it turned out that the social science, uh, the School of Social Science was not going to approve it. And so I moved over to the humanities uh, uh, and, and the humanities department and College of Humanities and the Arts and religious studies because they were happy to have a Middle East studies program. So it was a shock going from anthropology to religious studies, but uh, it turned out to be a very good fit. And did you have a, a traditional religious education? Uh, were you already fluent in Hebrew um, with your anthropology? And did you study other languages as you were developing the Middle East uh, studies? When I was a kid, I went to a, a school in, in LA called Hillel Hebrew Academy. It was half a, day uh, half a day Hebrew in the morning and half a day English in the afternoon. And in the morning, all the language and all the letters were alive. And they went from right to left and they all had personalities and, and um, they had prayers and, and they had a whole universe. And in the afternoon, it was, everything was in English and it was just 
consonants and vowels. And so I think I really appreciated the difference between the two. Um, so I, I grew up with, um, I grew up with those two languages. Um, I didn't, I've never become fluent in anything, but um, I, I went to a study in Israel when, when I was uh, 18, I think it was 18. And instead of, instead of final exams at the end of the year, there was a war that was the 67 war, the six day war. And at the end of that war, and after I returned home, I decided that my education had been entirely Jewish and that I needed to discover the other side, you know, the total opposite end of things, which I thought was the opposite end of things. And I started studying Arabic and Islam and the Arab world to kind of put my experience of that six-day war, just six days, into perspective since I had had an entirely Zionist education and I needed to know the region and the peoples of the region. So then I began balancing those two and discovering how much they had in common as opposed to, um, as opposed to what they had in warfare. Um, apart from that, I also lived in Belgium for a few years, and so I spoke, uh, I learned French as well. So, um, and in North Africa, those languages get all mixed up. So it's, there's a combination of French and Arabic, local dialects of Arabic, that become distinctly North African. And I want to know more about your book about Tunisia. Uh, do you have uh, relatives from there? Because we had a guest who, his whole family were uh, crypto Jews who fled uh, persecution in Mexico and ended up in Tunisia. And then he, he moved to, um, I think he was born in Paris and then he ended up in Israel. Um, how, what was the connection with um, North Africa in, in the development of that book? Um, in the development of that book, um, I, I would say I wanted to do this research originally in Algeria. And my, uh, one of my advisors at the University of California, Berkeley, said, you will never be able to do this in Algeria. It's just too fraught at, at that, certainly at that time. He said, ahla sehla, come to Tunisia. And, and so I did. And Tunisia was this incredibly welcoming experience from, from top to bottom, from, uh, from the archives to... Um, personal experiences, every door opened and people were the most welcoming um, uh, just um, at, at every level of, of um, society and uh, from officials to, um, to the peasantry, to women's homes, to men's meetings at the unions. And so, so Tunisia was an absolutely ideal place uh, so this was starting, what, 40 years ago, and I'm still close to, I was close to then, and their children and their grandchildren. The, the grandchild of, of uh, the woman I was closest to in Tunisia 40 years ago uh, was living at my house uh, uh, during COVID and is now a grad student at a university here. And so I've maintained those relationships all this time. And if you don't mind me asking, how many Jews are left in, in North Africa? Is there still 
Jews in Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, or have they all moved away due to persecution and um, there, there are still Jews in Tunisia, and there are still Jews in, in Morocco. And not only that, um, a, a number of years ago, uh, there was the opening of the Jewish Museum in Morocco. And I believe, I can't remember if that was in Fez or Casa, um, but there's, there, and in Fez, there's a Jewish quarter that gets many visitors and is maintained specifically to visit the old the old Jewish quarter of, of, and the cemetery especially. And it's visited not just by Jews, but there are pilgrimages in Morocco and in Tunisia uh, from Israel, from France, from Canada, um, during uh, around Pesach time, uh, the uh, pilgrimages to the graves of the Tzadikim. In fact, one year when, when I was in, uh, in, in uh, Morocco, one springtime, uh, Hillary Clinton was taking her daughter to ride horses, uh, ride camels in the South. And I was told, you see, she's a Jew because she came at Pesach to the South of the country. So she must be Jewish. And there was nothing I could say, or that I didn't try very hard, but uh, nothing I could say to convince anybody in Morocco that she wasn't a Jewish pilgrim coming to see her ancestors. That's how strong this the pilgrimage uh, season is for Jews returning to North Africa. So uh, I know she's married to a Jewish gentleman, uh, the daughter of Hillary Clinton, Chelsea. And um, the, um, for people who are not familiar with this, these terms, so Pesach is Passover, which we're celebrating this week. And then uh, the Sadikim is the, the righteous ones or the, the sages, the people who are saintly in, uh, in Jewish tradition. So let's, moving on to your book, which uh, the animated film is based on. Uh, this is, a, a, I guess, a, a review from someone uh, in, that is part of the book and in the afterward. Uh, J.B. Bristol in 2022 uh, said the following. Malka's notebook is also the story of the exile of the Shekhinah, at first, she's locked away, hidden inside a patriarchal library. The girl at the window, exiled from her mother, from herself, and from the world. But she has the courage to break free and rediscover the Torah and the world on her own terms. I'm grateful to Mira for having invented Malka, who is above all things a reader like you. Would you say that this is an autobiographical book and how much of your own experience is within the, the pages of this um, publication? There's not much that isn't me. Um, and uh, and as, as you know, it's an illustrated book. So there are illustrations on every page and in part that follow the movie. But, um, but the illustrations that show Malka are showing my life, including she wears my clothes. She wears... My mother's amulets, um, uh, her father is my father, um, and yet um, I, I'm not, she's not a fictional character, um, but she's not living in the world either. And yes, I think Josh is correct that she, she has a life that is similar to uh, the Shekhinah locked away 
and uh, disconnected from the world until she chooses to step out and find find the world and try to piece it back together. And also the that term uh, in you know in Western um, you know Christian circles they say Chekina or Chekina. Uh, the the way that I've heard it is Shekina is um, is the is God's presence or almost like the the Holy Spirit, but it has a feminine component in Jewish mysticism. So uh, tell us uh, what inspired the book, because this is complex stuff that unless you have a, a Jewish education, it might be hard to navigate. So we start with the, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in the, in the beginning um, verse of the book of Genesis. And where do you go from there in the book? My book starts earlier than that. That is, um, so you started with the hovering over Merachefet al Pnei Hamayin. But this book starts with the very first words. We don't even get that far. In fact, in, in the whole book, we don't get that far. It starts with the, with the beginning, that literally the beginning, in the beginning, God created. And then there's this word, et, which isn't translated anywhere. And it, it doesn't appear anywhere. And the question was, you have this little girl, and her father's trying to teach her Torah, and she gets stuck on the fourth word. So she doesn't get to anything else that happens, and um, she falls in right there. And then her journey takes place, Malka's journey takes place, inside those two letters. What could that mean? And uh, it, is, it, is it even et? Maybe it's at, which means you which makes everything that happens after that feminine. Um, maybe it's ot, which means letter. And, and eventually she discovers that aleph is the first letter of the alphabet, and taf is the very last letter of the alphabet, which means, bereshit bara Elohim et, means in the beginning, God created, or God was created, but God created the whole alphabet, that is, in the beginning, was this word, and the word is et. And et, and it, that tells you that everything that's created is created through the letters. And that is by a recombination, like DNA recombining genes, it's the recombination of these letters that make everything and make the stories that we have. And, uh, and so that's, that's how the book starts with her trying to figure out this et and um, the movie as well. It's, it's what is this et and where do we go from there? And it's a profound theological um, perspective because um, my debate with a, a lot of um, theologians from other Western traditions is that they're all models. Like the way we interpret the scripture is, is a model. Like, so if you, if you pick one thing to emphasize over another, you build a um, metaphorical um, language and um, and structures. So, um, in comparison to the Christian tradition, they they take the passage from Isaiah where it says, "I am the beginning and I'm the end," and then they apply it to Jesus and they say that he's the Alpha and the Omega. So there is no creation of Ed or Aleph and Tab. Now you have Aleph and Tab being God and God um, revealed through Jesus. 
so I've seen in the progressive translations of the Torah, it says that it's not in the beginning God created, but when God began to create. So it gives you a space where there was stuff before. And maybe there was other worlds or other universes that happened before. And it expands um, the interpretation of uh, the first verses of the Torah. Um, th was this something that, that you realized yourself as you were studying um, ancient Uh, religions, or is this something that you heard from a medieval rabbi or from the Talmud in relation to uh, those first letters? And I know in the mystical tradition, every letter has um, some type of divine essence. Uh, was that where that came from? Well, about 10 years ago, I started studying Zohar, and that is um, Daniel Matt, who retranslated uh, the, the Pritzker edition of Zohar, Um, to celebrate that, he, he created a, a series of, of, of studies in Zohar in different locations all, all around this area, around San Francisco Bay Area. And, um, and we were asked at the beginning, what is it that brought you to Zohar? And, and I said, what brought me to Zohar is I'm still trying to figure out et, <laughs> this Aleph and Tav. And, and I had still not come upon any explanation that would, I mean, it's a grammatical construct. You know, any Hebrew teacher will say, well, all it does is it introduces a direct object, but it introduces every important direct object. People don't care about such things, but I, I was obsessed with this at, and it turned out that the Zohar has written a huge amount on the et. And, um, and so I was very gratified. I didn't know that. But anyway, I continued to study Zohar because of this obsession with the et. Um, so in, in the book, um, Malka's obsession with et and that et opens this door for her uh, definitely mirrors my experience, although she started much younger than I did. And for those not familiar with the Zohar, it's a mystical work, I believe, from the 13th century yeah. and it was written by Joseph Caro in Spain and it, some people say it's a compilation of more ancient um, mystical works from Jewish tradition other people say that it was developed by him or revealed by him or that it was originally from another rabbi in the second century and it was finally passed down to him and he put it together so but it's the foundation of, of modern Kabbalah and uh, Daniel Matt is uh, one of the the founders of the Kabbalah Center, and there are many um, organizations throughout the world. So when, when you look at, um, it keeps, the book keeps going into uh, Bereshit bara Elohim et. Um, is that the same passage? Yeah, because it's the beginning it got created et. Um, and then you break down each letter and also the, the word Elohim later on. When you study the the word for for God or gods, is that where you um, go into um, the other uh, Semitic religions of uh, Canaan, where there was the the great god El, and then um, you try to show the connection between uh, Judaism and the Canaanite religion, uh, or what what are you trying to do with with that part of the, the story? That, that might be the most controversial part of the book, actually. Um, the idea, God forbid, excuse me, that um, the Jewish tradition is coming out of another tradition. 
Um, but all traditions come out of another tradition, and eventually they all go back to Sumer and Mesopotamia and uh, a little bit from Egypt, um, much, much less so, I, I believe. Um, but our ideas are coming from other ideas, previous ideas, and the letters, the Hebrew letters that we have today are coming from earlier Hebrew letters or Proto-Hebraic letters, and they're going back to these Canaanite letters and Egyptian letters. Um, the letter Bet, for example, is shaped like a courtyard. And if you look at the hieroglyphics, it's, it actually is a courtyard that represents the house. And what is the letter Bet? But the letter that Bet means bite, it means house. Or if in Arabic, it means room. Um, and it's shaped, the shape of the Bet is exactly like a room. So I got interested in uh, the origin of, of the letters themselves, um, and not just with Hebrew, but also with North African indigenous languages, that there was a language that looked like art, and that art was something that women put on their own bodies, that they would um, use tattoos or henna, and they'd create these designs or they'd weave them into their carpets and uh, put them in their pottery. And it turned out that those two were the, an ancient, an ancient uh, language. They didn't even remember that it was a language. So I'm interested in the letters as symbols and going back as far as, far as we can go. You mentioned your grandfather uh, being an atheist. Do you feel that uh, religious folks or those interested in mysticism have to respond to their questions and their concerns, especially when you look into anthropology and sociology, how things develop versus thinking of everything just coming straight from God and dictated to Moses? Um, by doing musings of, of the letters, you're also exploring different ways you can look at the tradition without dismissing it and seeing how rich it could be just coming from different sources. My grandfather loved the language too. And, and uh, uh, I mean, he was raised also with Turkish and Ladino. I mean, he was Sephardic. So this Judeo-Spanish that he was raised with was written in Hebrew letters. And um, he, he was a factory worker, a communist in, in the days of early days of, um, uh, of factory workers trying to organize in the unions and uh, God didn't help uh, at all. Um, and um, his skepticism did help. He was, he, he, his, his atheism, his belief in, in humanity, that it was going to take humans organizing, um, that that was uh, the cornerstone of, of his existence. It was the most important thing in his life. Um, but he did have this mystical... And I think for him, it came out of music. He, he played oud, and he had a little group of the old men who played oud together, and the women would play their castanets and their zills. And I think the mystical part of his existence came out of the harmony of, the, of their voices and the harmony of, of, the, of the music itself. I don't think um, mysticism has to come out of some intellectual pursuit, um, but the joining 
together in harmony. I think that's what it was for him. In page 92, you mentioned the four sages that went to paradise. Um, I find that uh, passage very intriguing because it shows how when, when people experience the divine, they all have different um, ways to process it. So you have Ben Asai, Ben Zoma, Elijah Ben Abuya, and Rabbi Akiva. And one goes crazy, one, one dies, one becomes a heretic, and the other guy comes out enlightened from the experience. Uh, what do you learn from that passage in the Talmud in relation to our human individual uh, experience of God and of the heavenly realms as, as describing that? that? That story, which is only a few lines um, long uh, of their journey and what happens to each of, each of the sages, um, that journey I see as, as handing us a tool, handing us a methodology. And, and um, when I teach, I tend to call it the Pardes model, that is the model, the letters. So it's back to the letters that each of those rabbis represents one of the letters of the word pardes, which means paradise um, or the, the, the orchard um, with a capital O of orchard. And um, uh, if you start with, with uh, the pardes, with the letter P, it stands for the word pshat, which is... Um, concrete, simple, this is a, a way of, of experiencing the world exactly as it is, the physical world, it is what it is, there's nothing else, it's a very fundamentalist approach of taking the level, that I see it as the first level of consciousness. And then each of these, each of these uh, rabbis experiences the world from a different perspective. And if you continue to the last one, Rabbi Akiva, he is the letter, the letter S, Sod, which stands for the hidden dimension, the secrets, and the mystical dimension. So these four rabbis, they're, they're not failures. They're part of a methodology of, of moving from one state of consciousness to another and going from Pshat, the, the simple, the concrete, to Sod, the mystical. And it's not that one of these methods is good or bad. It's that the shot, the physical world, is the one that opens the door that allows you to travel and to shift your consciousness from, from, that, from, from taking things literally to being analytical, to having it affect your behavior, to experiencing the universe all as one. So that's how I see the story. Um, that's where the story takes me. As, as a lesson in shifts of consciousness, as opposed to one of them, that only one rabbi is the one we should emulate, and that's Rabbi Akiva, who almost nobody can emulate anyway. Um, but his, his achievements are uh, not there for, for us to, to even try, but if we experience, if we experience that um, mystical way, um, it's only because we actually investigated the physical world as well. And this is a, a revelation on our part. The reason the, that our show is called Mystic and Skeptic is because um, one of my favorite um, authors or Jewish theologians is Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he wrote the Heavenly Torah, which talks about 
the mystical from Akiva and the uh, skeptic or more rational from Rabbi Eliezer. And in the past seven years, we've been exploring how you can look at spirituality and philosophy uh, in an open way, but also be critical and try to find answers that are connected to, you know, the sciences and the way we experience uh, life in a methodological way versus just being completely free flow and, and nothing to hold on to. Uh, so there's a part in your book where um, Malka uh, travels and she goes to, I believe, Jerusalem and she sees an image of the Virgin Mary uh, with the baby and reminds you of your mother. And then she keeps traveling through the Middle East. What, is, that, is this also autobiographical of you uh, going to Greece? And um, there's some stuff about Ur or, or Iraq and then uh, being in Turkey with the the dancers. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Um, the, the travels that Malka goes on are, um, you could you could actually chart them on a map. Uh, she starts with Paris, and, and which is, and it's Paris where she encounters the Madonnas all over the city, and everywhere she goes, you know, uh, the museums and the churches, and her first experience of churches as well. And then her travels uh, and, and the, the Madonna is a shock. Um, the images of the Madonna and child are, are, are a shock for, for her. Um, she's never seen anything like it. And um, I, I'm just realizing now, the books in her father's library don't have pictures anyway, <laughs> have any pictures of anything. And there are certainly no books on the Madonna or on Christ. Um, and she goes from there to, to, um, uh, to Greece. Uh, to the islands. And uh, um, so, yes, I, I would say, um, what a surprise. Uh, so, um, and her experiences in Spain, especially, there's, there's a lot more in Spain than um, uh, in the book than is immediately apparent. Um, that is, there's, there's an image um, of the Mesquita de Cordoba, uh, the, the mosque, um, the mosque cathedral of Cordoba, um, which is one of the most exquisite um, edifices um, imaginable from my point of view, because here you have this cathedral with a mosque inside of it and with another cathedral inside of that. And at the core of the cathedral the, uh, the, of the little cathedral in the center of this mosque, you see a pulpit, this enormous black pulpit, and below it is a bull. And the bull is being squashed, and the bull is in agony being squashed by the pulpit of the church. And to me, that, that L is, that um, bull is the god L. And of course, the Spanish have a tradition of bullfighting, but they also have Altamira, Alta, the caves of Altamira, which is a, really a holy place for very ancient people who were painting these cave paintings of the bull representing something larger than themselves and um, in the hopes of good hunts. And, and, and that bull becomes this holy relic from Spain all the way to India going straight across and 
treated in, in, in the Mesquita de Cordoba as this thing to be stamped out. And then the bullfights reinforce that. Her, her travels are where she encounters other cultures, and, and yet she, she in her own tradition has the word El, meaning God, and Elohim, meaning gods, the gods. Um, and, and she sees this with her own eyes. Um, she, she encounters the bull, for example, and then through archaeology, the, the other, the, some of the other deities as well. So, yes, I'm familiar with these travels. Um, and Malka's travels are a, a few. Uh, she shares a few of them with me. Um, but she hasn't gone anywhere that I haven't gone. So, And this is the cover of the book that is in the middle of the, of the narrative. Tell us about the, the feminist uh, components in the book, because, you know, as an artist, I can tell that that's uh, Adam uh, being created by God from Michelangelo, but it's now it's with feminine figures and the, the image of, of possibly the Shekinah or God depicted as a female has the written text behind her. Uh, tell us uh, if that's the inspiration for this image. And I know the you work with the artist to, to create the illustrations. Um, yes, that image shows Malka sitting on the Torah or sitting uh, uh, near or uh, in, in the sky there. That is, in, instead of God floating in, in the sky, you have a human being there with her glasses on. And that Torah is the Torah that my the scroll that my father gave to me. It's 400 years old. Um, my father founded a museum, and, and this scroll was too damaged uh, to be in a museum. So he gave it to me to share with my students. And um, so everything in even inside these images are coming from, from my house or my experience. And, and so Malka is at root um, exploring Bereshit, which is the passage that is in that, in that image. And the goddess Anat is on the ground. So, so uh, that is, she, is uh, she represents alchemical earth. And, and so... So there's this relationship between the Torah and and the earth. So it's she's she represents the earth, and you have this connection between them. So yes, it's it's a parody, I suppose, of um, of God and Adam uh, linked together, which is very famous. And what we're doing is um, the feminine equivalent of that. An- another way to look at it is Malka's the Shekhinah. Perhaps, um, but or or any mother and daughter, um, and then there are the Hebrew words me and ma. Me mean at the, me at the top, meaning who, who that, that is who who creates, and then at the bottom ma what. So it's the the who and the what, and that is who is the creator and who is what is it that is created? So it has that dimension as well. That's interesting. You have to have a a very open mind if you're religious, because um, uh, the thing that people bring up all the time is that instead of uh, us being created in the image of God, is that we have created God in our own image. 
and that's why in all um, monotheistic traditions, he's male. As much as people try to say that, no, he wasn't really male, he has no gender, um, you know, with the little Hebrew that I know, everything is um, male-oriented and, and patriarchal. So um, to, to focus on the feminine of God or to make God in a feminine image is almost sacrilegious because you're turning God into something that he didn't uh, describe himself as. But um, there are some passages, especially stuff related to El Shaddai or uh, wisdom or things like that within the, the whole of the Tanakh that has some feminine components, but the majority of, of the descriptions are, are masculine. So then thinking of the other deities and, and how they were all fertility-based uh, gods, that um, you can either th look at it as that the Israelites or the Hebrews were fighting against those, those religious systems and trying to portray theirs as a singular God that had no partners and no um, concubines or wives or whatever. Or you can see it as um, they just focus on the masculine and they, they drop the feminine altogether as, uh, as part of their um, you know, specific claim. So uh, to bring in the other gods as, as nature or as representing different elements or things like that, it's, um, it's, it could be uncomfortable for um, religious folks, but even uh, the part where it says that um, Baal uh, becomes a brother, um, how, how do you see that? And I know that um, Anita Diamond in her book, um, The Red Tent, uh, discusses that freely without any uh, uh, concern of offending anybody that there was multiple deities and then they picked the ones they liked and that became the narrative of Tanakh. How do you see uh, Baal and uh, Asherah and all the different deities as you go along in your story? I think it's a matter of evidence, um, not belief. And the evidence is that, that the, these ancient stories, these ancient deities, you can dig them up in the ground and find them in, in these ancient sites. And they were ubiquitous um, at, throughout the Mediterranean. Um, I mean, people don't complain when, when you speak of the Greek gods and the, the stories of the Greek gods. You, 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 uh, we seem to teach that in school as part of Western civilization. Um, and there's absolutely no reason to, to be afraid of these ancient deities. They're simply part of human history. Um, and and female student who, when I mentioned Baal in, in Jewish mysticism, she started crying and shaking. She was so upset that she had been taught that Baal was the devil, as opposed to a figurine that was found unearthed, un unearthed in, in a site in the Holy Land, and that this was an ancient god. And not only was it an ancient god, but there were many different kinds of Baal, and Baal is a Hebrew word, happens to mean husband, which I think is hysterical, um, and uh, Baal Habayit's husband, um, it, it's, there's nothing to be afraid of in, 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 in these ancient figurines that we have found and are trying to figure out who they were, what did they do, why did humans need them? 
Um, what were they for? What did people do with them? And, um, and, and that's why they were there. The, the word, the Egyptian word was neter, which is where our word nature comes from. So these were depictions of natural elements in the world, um, trying to gain control over them, uh, trying to, trying to get, get their help, get, get these features of, of the natural world to cooperate and giving them names and giving them very human names because we anthropomorphize. Uh, it's the way we deal with the unknown. Um, so yes, I think people do get afraid. Um, I mean, I wasn't raised that way. So it was the first time I encountered it, which was with this student crying in fear. I then discovered that many, many of my students were, were terrified of, of ancient concepts that were not part of their religious tradition. Um, and I think that's what university or that's what school is for, to encounter the history and prehistory of the world as opposed to fearing it.